Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Hi, it's Ronit. A quick announcement that the short story collection I wrote, Home is a Made Up Place, has just been released and is available wherever you get books. So if your bookstore or library do not yet have it, you can request Home is a Made Up Place and they should be able to get it in pretty quickly. Now, it is a short fiction collection, and I realize that this is a memoir podcast, but I have written both, and so if you are interested in fiction and you like short stories, you might enjoy the collection. Uh, In addition, if you are in the Seattle area, I have a live book event at Third Place Books in Ravenna, and that will be on Tuesday, April 4th at 7 p.m., and there will be books for sale and a book signing afterward. In more book news... I will be in New York and Connecticut in April as well for a couple of book events. So if you are anywhere near Woodstock, New York or Cold Spring, New York, I will be there on April 15th in a daytime event at the Golden Notebook and an evening event at the Butterfield Library. Lastly, on April 20th, which is a Thursday, I will be in Norwalk, Connecticut at the library for Writers in Conversation, and that is an evening event. I will list all of these on my website under services and then scroll down to events. And I'll also have a quick link in Instagram at Ronit Plank in my bio. That's where you can find information on my memoir, on the short story collection, how to order, other episodes of Let's Talk Memoir, and any other recent projects. I think that's it for now. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for sharing the podcast with your friends. There has been a recent uptick in downloads, and it seems that more and more people are tuning into Let's Talk Memoir every week, if not every day. So if you like the show, please keep on sharing and telling your writing friends about it. Post on social media. You can even leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's really helpful as well. Thank you again. And without further ado, here is this week's episode. Today, my guest is Erica Bornman, who has carved a career for herself in magazine publishing as a writer and editor, despite her lack of formal training. Her words, not mine. (laughs) Her memoir is her first book and an important element in her quest to make the world a safer place for children. She lives in Cape Town, South Africa with her two cats. And before I officially welcome Erica Bornman, I will give a little bit of an overview of her book, Mission of Malice. This is a little bit of the blurb. When Erica Bornman was nine years old, her family joined and ultimately moved to Kwasizabantu, a Christian mission in South Africa, a place touted as a nirvana founded on egalitarian values. But something sinister lurks below the veneer of piousness here. Life at Kwasizabantu is hard. Christianity is used to justify harsh punishments and congregants are forced to repent for their sins. Threats of physical violence ensure adherence to stringent rules. Parents are pitted against children. Friendships are discouraged. Isolated and alone, Erica lives in constant fear of eternal damnation. And we will unpack more about this memoir during this interview. But first, I'd like to welcome you, Erica, to Let's Talk Memoir. 
Ronit, thank you so much for having me. I'm such a huge fan of your podcast and I feel so honored to be here today. Oh, thank you so much for being my guest. And, you know, I believe that you are the first memoir guest I've had on the show who is coming from a cult or coercive group, high control group experience. And so this sort of merges my interest in cults and high control groups, which you know, came out of my own memoir and my previous podcast with my interest in memoir. So can you share a bit about your memoir, Mission of Malice? Yes. So Mission of Malice basically um, takes place from when I'm around eight or nine years old until the age of 49, which is when I penned the last words. So it's split into six parts, and the first two parts is about me as a young child and a teenager at Kwasi Zabantu, and then I somehow found the courage to run away at the age of 21, but then I was in this very foreign world. We didn't, at the mission, we didn't have TVs or radios, or there was no worldly music allowed, no no magazines, books were strictly censored, so I felt completely alien and I kind of found myself in this world believing fully that I was going straight to hell because I was Mm -hmm. defying God. Then within a few years I started understanding that what I had experienced and witnessed there was abuse and I started on a bit of a quest to get South Africa take note of this place and then I wrote an article in a very well-known women's magazine in the year 2000 and that got a lot of national attention but it all died down and then I kind of went quiet for a long time and so the book details my life just also relationships I mean which were so messed up and then in 2019 I spoke to the head of uh, News24 which is South Africa's premier online news organization And they launched a seven-month investigation into this place, and it culminated in um, an incredible expose called Exodus, an award-winning podcast. There was a documentary and very many articles, and this really brought this place to the forefront. They're an extremely wealthy, extremely well-connected place. They own South Africa's largest water bottling plant, Aquele. So they, this brought garnered a lot of attention, and as a result of this, I was offered a book deal by Penguin Random House because they knew I am a writer, so it wasn't completely out of the blue. <laughs> and so I, I, I basically detail up to around May 2020 is when I wrote the last words. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it takes up, it takes the reader up to the events up until the end of May 2021. What also happens in your memoir and what you cover quite thoroughly, and it's a really important component, is the tension and the struggle within your own family. Uh, This isn't just a a private one-on-one struggle between you and this religious cult that you're trying to leave, but also the harrowing experience you had trying to figure out your parents' involvement and your siblings and how they reacted, left or stayed, with Kwasibantu, which which kind of is the other thread in the book. And I wonder how your relationship with your brother and sister is now. And, and I guess we should give a little bit of background if you would like to talk a little bit about that before we dive into writing about those relationships. 
Yeah. So my mother and my sister are still part of Kwasi Sabanti. They're actually in the leadership now. Um, and my father died when I was 15. I believe he would have seen the light and I believe he wouldn't have been a part of that place for very long. Um, but my brother also left and my brother is my absolute hero. And I think, mm -hmm. I, I think that comes through very strongly in the book. A number of people have said to me after reading Definitely. the book, like, wow, your brother is such an amazing guy. And he, he has been such a staunch supporter of mine. Um, and I'm so grateful to him. My mother and sister have publicly spoken out against me. My mother denounced me as a liar, um, from the pulpit a few months ago or a year and a bit ago um, they've both um, signed sworn affidavits with with complete lies in it about me um, so uh, there there will be no reconciliation there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. which is actually a little bit you know different because there's parts of the memoir where a reader or at least I felt that maybe there was going to be a thawing you're going to read from an excerpt in a moment from yes. your memoir that has a lot to do with your mom but I I wonder it's so interesting to me the people who escape from groups like this and the people who don't or can't and I wonder if you see anything in your brother and you versus your sister that made the outcomes possible do you and, and maybe that's an oversimplification but is there anything because early on in the memoir it's very clear that young you know something is wrong and that this mm. is not a good place for you and you know I'm not sure how much of that is hindsight and how much was truly present with you can you speak to that yeah look the place always filled me with great dread but I absolutely believed that they were God's spokespeople on earth. Um, and therefore, I absolutely internalized that if there was a problem, I was the problem. And even when I ran away, um, it, I fully believed that God was going to strike me down um, uh, because I was leaving the one true way. And it took me a number of years to, to stop believing that they were you know, the only way and the true way. So, but I, I never felt part of them. And I always felt a great sense of unease and danger. Um, my mm -hmm. mother, I, 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 what I haven't said to the to your listeners is that my mother actually um, went so far as disowning me around 1995, 96. I ran away in 1993. And as for the difference between, you see my sister, I, I was approached three times from the age of 18 in the first, in a year I was approached like, or two years, I was approached three times to get married. And I said no. While, while you were in, while you were yeah, in the group. And, mm -hmm. and, and somewhere I found the courage to say no three times because as a, as a, as a girl, you taught that, that men are superior to you. And so if this man says that it's God's will for him to marry you, who are you to say no? And I am very lucky that I said no three times. My sister was proposed to and she said yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what sealed her fate. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, do you feel that this, you know, let me know if this is not something you want to answer, but do you feel that her partner, of the outcomes that she could have experienced with a partner, that her partner is an okay person for her within no. that group? No, he's an awful human being. I detest mm -hmm. him. 
with mm-hmm. all my heart and soul. And mm-hmm. my my publisher's lawyers actually had me take out a few of the things I wrote about him. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is really, that is something that comes up for memoirists. If you are part of memoirist uh, communities, this idea of protecting ourselves and how much do we disclose. So can you, can you talk a little bit about how that decision was made with him versus your mother in terms yeah. of what to disclose? Yeah, so I, um, look, it was just the lawyer just said to me, look, you, you're, you're a little bit hard on this guy, you know, and he's, he doesn't get a chance <laughs> to, to say, you know, um, to say anything. So I, I had to take out a few sentences. I tried to be respectful um, in the way that I told the story. But this place is still going and it's impossible to divorce my family's story from this place's story. And I realized that the only way the world might take notice is if, if, if I actually share my pain and, and what happened. Um, and I can't divorce that from my mother. Unfortunately, I always thought, Ronit, that I would write this book once my mother had died and I already had the first line and it was going to be, they buried my mother today, I wasn't there. And that mm-hmm. was going to be the opening to my book. But then the events happened and I realized that I needed to write it while she was still alive. And it caused me a great amount of distress and I cried a lot because, well, obviously I couldn't contact her you know, um, but in a way, I almost feel like the book, in a way, is almost a love letter to her, except I know she won't see it that way. I don't know if, I don't know if readers can pick up on that, but um, I tried very hard to show my failings and where I messed up and where I erred and to not only focus on the harm that had been done to me, but to also acknowledge and be very clear about the harm that I had perpetrated myself in my life, whether through ignorance or willfulness or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you can find a balance there, um, writing about family is always going to be hard, but there is a way of telling the truth without, I think, really, really being nasty about it. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And, and I know that a relationship with a mother, at least in my experience and in so many of the stories I've read, really never ends. You're always in sort of conversation and relationship with your own experience with your mom and mm-hmm. um, whether that mom has been there or not, right? So if you feel ready, would you read that excerpt we talked about? Yes. But may I just say that I found your memoir so beautiful in the way that you um, wrote about it um, as a young girl um, and your and, and kind of your relationship with your mother and father and sister. And I, yeah, I just wanted to tell you oh, that I thank you. absolutely loved your memoir. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Erica. Thank you. Yes, it's really an area of interest for me. I mean, I do love memoir in general, mm. but I do find myself drawn again and again mm. to the childhood mm. recollections and the memoirs of adverse childhood experiences. And uh, while I'll read almost any memoir, I'm sure I will, yeah. I find an extra 
an extra area of interest in those where someone had an insecure childhood. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I thought I thought you portrayed that that very well there were some instances where and I listened to the audiobook where I was like damn I've got to get the physical book so that I can actually reread those things <laughs> you're <Okay>. so kind <laughs> so I'm going to read from chapter 59 um, the just the first bit of the chapter it's the chapter title is a stranger at the table fast forward two years to early 2009 my mother still sends me the odd message now and then One day she tells me that she's making my favorite chicken dish and wishes I lived closer so I could come and enjoy it. Mostly the texts say she's praying for me. One tells me that God's mercy is going to run out on me. Her messages are random. Sometimes weeks go by, sometimes months before I hear from her again. I don't respond to most of them. We still talk on the phone sometimes, perhaps once every three years or so. I see her at a beloved uncle's funeral. The day before the funeral, we speak on the phone, and she reiterates that we reconcile at the cross, or not at all. She also says something that cuts me deeply. She says, it's good my dad isn't around to see what has become of me. Sure, that still hurts. Take your time, and if this isn't, you know, we don't have to continue. No, 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 I'm, I'm okay. Out of the blue, one week in March, I get a barrage of texts. My mother is in Montague, visiting her brothers and mother. She wants me to come and see her there. I check with Chris. That's my brother, dear reader. He's also been getting more texts than usual. So I sit down and write her a letter on the Friday afternoon. It's long, but here are some extracts. Dear mother, I'm really happy that you're having such a great visit in Montague but I find myself wondering why you would want to see me. The last time we had any kind of real conversation, you told me in no uncertain terms on the phone that we would meet at the cross or not at all. From where I'm standing, nothing has changed in either of our lives. I believe that it matters not what you believe in. What matters is how you live and how you treat yourself, others and the world around you. You have always stood firm that your way is the right way and that I am not worthy of being called your daughter for as long as I reject that way. My question to you is this. If I were to come and visit, would you accept me for who I am or would I have to skirt around what my life is really like to keep the very fragile peace? I'm a woman now. I haven't been your child for a very long time. My father would have been proud of the person I've become despite what you told me to the contrary on the phone that day. This I know for sure. If you knew me, allowed yourself to see past the fact that I don't follow your God, you would be honoured to have this woman as your daughter. Has anything changed for you? If I come to visit, will you accept me for who I am? Or will I be faced with yet another rejection? I have faced and handled your outright rejections from when I was 21 and left the mission, and the more subtle rejections from before that. I'm being blunt in this letter, spelling everything out, but I want you to understand that I'm not prepared to keep hoping for a reconciliation of sorts between us, only to be rejected the first time I voice any kind of disagreement with you. What I want is a mother who accepts, even loves me for the person I am. The non-church-going person, yes, but also the compassionate, loving, full-of-life, happy person I am. If you are not able to be that mother who loves her daughter unconditionally, then please do not ask me to visit you when you come down to the Cape. 
I'm not asking you to approve of everything I do, but to accept me regardless. Finally, in case we don't get to talk again, I would like you to know that I have forgiven you for all the rejection, for all the hurt you caused me and all the neglect. I am not angry at you and I ask for nothing but your acceptance of me. Love, Erica. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like, I mean, it's really, it's hard to sum up, but I feel like in, in so many instances, that is what grown-up children want of their parents. That's what yeah. we all want is yeah. unconditional acceptance. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's so, it's so hurtful when someone, especially our parent rejects us for who we are. Mm. And I feel that it's a wound that is very hard to heal, if at all. Uh, has your anger about or toward your mother changed at all since the memoir came out? Yes. I found such um, compassion in me for her and for my sister and for all of us, really, while I was writing my memoir. I, And despite what they've done in the last two years and the way they've maligned me in public, which I suppose I've done to them, in public as well. I don't feel anger towards them. I feel anger towards the institution and towards the the the, the man and the woman in charge, but mm-hmm. um, I don't feel anger towards my mother. Is it weird to say that I no, I don't feel indifference either. I just I feel deep sadness actually. Mm-hmm. Just deep sadness. It's just a loss and a loss and a loss, right? And then, yeah. you know, when you when you have a loss like this, uh, writing it is it can be very helpful and also very, very hard. And oh, I don't. That's what I mean. I think you're just in relationship with it all the time. And then, when you revisit the material, when you think about it, it's just never done. But I think it does help to work it out. I mean, I I have heard from one of my guests not long ago, John Bowie, John Ross Bowie said he felt that everyone should attempt to write a memoir just for the process of. Mm. of self-reflection and growth that it can offer right um if you're working yeah yes Mm. yeah and um but but sure writing this this memoir was incredibly hard um you know i i and i wrote it in kind of record time um (laughs) (laughs) because it was such a topical book and my publishers wanted to get it out on the shelf and i prevaricated for the first three months (laughs) <laughs> and then the closer the deadline came, the more panicked I got. So I, I basically wrote it in five and a half months. Um, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So then did, did you did you do a lot of editing at the end or did you rely heavily on their editors? Do you know, I had the most amazing editor. So I sent her my memoir in batches. Like the mm-hmm. whole manuscript wasn't ready. Like I said, I wrote the final words in May and the book was out in August. So Wow, that is so fast. Yeah, yeah. So I started writing in January. So I and I wrote the final words uh, towards the end of May, beginning of June. Um, and then mm. it was out in August. So we kind of had a production line going where <laughs> I would send her batch one and two. And then while I was writing batch three, she was editing batch one and two. And then she would send it back to me. And I would, I loved all her edits. She worked so carefully mm. with my words. And I absolutely loved the, the, the beautiful way with which she treated my copy. And yeah. 
in hindsight, now that it's been a little bit of time, not even that much time, um, really, you know, relatively, because mm-hmm. some people are working on their memoirs for, I mean, even a decade, right? And then there's like edits and stuff. But do you like the pace that this went at? Do you think this was helpful to you as a writer to have that kind of deadline looming? Do you know, I don't think I could have done it if I didn't have that deadline looming. And if they hadn't paid me in advance and I'd already spent some of the money, I would have stopped. It was so hard. It was Mm -hmm. incredibly hard. And I don't think I could have gone through that torture for longer than six months. (laughs) Yeah. It it really felt like torture. While you were doing it? It was in lockdown. It was during COVID. So I had moral support from my friends, but I was alone, really. Yeah. I had my cats. (laughs) <laughs> yes. I, I know all of our companion animals are so happy to have us around although maybe the ones who have really small children were not as happy but um wondering what about uh any kind of uh support for you emotionally beyond beyond the cats and the friends because I know Laura Davis talks about the memoirist and she's a previous guest talks about sort of managing the traumatic material oh, oh. while you're writing it did you have therapy at the time too oh yes oh yes and and my therapist and I actually up my sessions to once every two weeks as opposed to once a month um and mm-hmm. and sh- she's amazing and so but 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 I spent most of those five and a half months um, in tears. I, like I think mm-hmm. of the beginning of the first half of 2021 as just the just crying. I just spent crying, and um, and I mean I still cry when I read passages from my book. I don't read it very often, so now mm-hmm. like when I read it out loud, I still get emotional and tearful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also so proud actually of of what I did would I have loved to have had a longer editing process I think so yes I'm I'm hoping to get an international publisher interested and then I think that will allow me the opportunity to do another thorough edit um, to also get it ready for a more international audience I I don't know Mm. I'm hoping Mm. Yeah. Well, if it means anything to you as an American, um, I still was able to follow everything. I didn't feel like yeah. it wasn't ready for an international Thank audience, you. right? I, I did write it with, with people in mind that don't necessarily know South Africa's history that well. So mm. I'm glad. But to yes, it. I can see how that would round it out, how mm. get, understanding the role that the that the group plays in South Africa mm. in general. and Because some people are not that aware of South Africa. And in fact... Born a Crime is one of the only other books I yeah, read yeah. about South Africa. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very undereducated there. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I've so, got some great memoirs to suggest. Oh, yes, that's you. right. You're going to tell me about them. That's right. That's right. So then what about this idea? You're pretty fresh out of the gate with a memoir, really. I mean, like I said, it's, it hasn't been many years since it's been out. But how do you feel about talking about this and being this woman who is attached to this story? You know, sometimes when we write these works and we put them in the world, then we become sort of the anchoring element of the story Mm. and then people will always attach the story to us and so how do you feel about that I'm okay with that I've kind of I kind of took that role on in 2000 already so um and I have kind of been the face and the voice for speaking out against this place other people have joined me but I I'm actually quite comfortable being that face and that voice and at times it's hard and I mean I've had death threats and and I get horrible messages as well but mostly I just get support 
and so so I'm okay with it I'm I'm writing a novel at the moment that I'm very excited about it's my first novel so I don't know how that's going to go but she has a she has a complicated relationship with her father for a change I thought I'd stay away from the mother's stuff for a bit um so I'd like to I mean we'll see when when that comes out you know whether whether it's received as well as my my memoir has been received but um I'm okay being the voice at the moment because someone has to and if not me then who Mm. yeah do you have any other advice in terms of legalities or when a memoirist is talking and dealing with a talking about or dealing with a pretty sticky Mm. subject or talking about others what have you learned I know you had you mentioned a lawyer who really recommended you remove your brother-in-law is there anything else that you came up across that you think would be really good for memoirs to keep in mind? Yes. So I was very lucky that the lawyer that Penguin Random House used was the same lawyer that News 24 had used for the Exodus Exposé. So he already knew my story, him and his team. And I learned quite a lot in going through their changes and their recommendations of what you can and can't say. And that sometimes all you need to add is alleged and then it's okay mm. to say it. Or I believe rather than... Ah. So instead of making a statement to say they are the worst people on earth, you say, I believe they are the worst people on earth. So ah. that... Ah, that's very helpful. Yeah. So so that was very interesting. And I'm very grateful that... Um, and they did a thorough job because none of us have been sued yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a win. Um, well, I want so- to go to court. I want these... So am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yes, yes. Please, I want these ahead. fuckers to take me to court, and they're too chicken shit to do it. They won't. <laughs> but anyway, so but I didn't want Penguin Random House to be taken to court. So yeah, the, their lawyer did a really, really thorough job. I would say that if you're writing about people, so what I did, obviously, I didn't speak to anybody at the mission, but everybody else's story that is in my book, um, I consulted them and then I actually sent them the words that were written about them just to double check that they were happy with what I'd written um I felt very strongly because a lot of them are are fellow survivors and it's very Mm -hmm. it was very important to me that they felt um comfortable with the way that I had portrayed them and their stories so yeah so and my brother read the whole manuscript before it went to print and you know, he made small corrections, like small childhood memories where I got the mm-hmm. location of a house wrong, you know, and then he corrected me on that. Um, and then I also listened to him. There were a few things that I didn't write because he asked me up front to please not put in the book because, like he said, it wasn't really my story to tell. It was my sister's, mm-hmm. it was part of mm-hmm. my part of my sister's story. But I think that that... If you can be kind, be kind, um, but also be truthful. And where possible, I think for me it really worked to to engage people, talk to them about their story, tell them what I wanted to write, and then send them what I had written and said, if you have a problem with anything, please let me know. Mm-hmm. I really yeah. appreciate that. And I also want to say my sister, which I've mentioned in conversations, but my sister helped me with my manuscript in that way, too, mm-hmm. where she kind of clarified a couple of things. And I got to check 
on things with her, which is a luxury. I'm so grateful for it. And, uh, you know, your brother on us, you know, I want to just let you know how tenderly your brother comes across in the memoir Aww. and also your love for your father. Yes. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, uh, part of the beating heart of the memoir. And, um, you know, along with all of this fraught material, there is that kindness and tenderness toward those men. Thank you, Ronit. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, what do you think people who have not been touched by cults and high control groups might misunderstand about those who fall victim to them? I think that people don't understand that these are genuinely people who want to do good. And um, yes, some of them are seeking and some of them may be damaged in some way and are looking for a hole to fill um, or to fill a hole. Um, mm. But I think the vast majority, and I, that was definitely the case with my father, Kwasisabantu is a multiracial society in apartheid South Africa. That was an extremely rare and unusual thing. And I know that appealed to my father. And he was very excited about the fact that whites and blacks lived together and that there were no there was no separation the way that apartheid was law in South Africa. Um, um, the people, I think, in my opinion, 95% of the people who join cults do so because they want to make a difference in the world. They want to do better. They want to do good. And they see this organization as a vehicle that's going to allow them to do the maximum amount of good and it's then they get sucked in and I think I don't know I was a child but I think what happens as an adult is that the first time you sense that something is wrong you go shut up you're just being you know whatever to mm -hmm. yourself and you silence your inner critic you silence your mm -hmm. inner voice and you silence your intuition. And the more you silence your intuition, the stronger their voice become until eventually it's only their voice in your head and your intuition is completely, completely, completely wiped out. And I think that's what happens. But mm. uh, that's is just... that is that how you understand your parents yeah. became vulnerable to this group? Yeah. My father, the day before he died of a heart attack, he was only 43. And they'd asked him to be principal at the school, the one of the first multiracial schools in South Africa. And um, the day before he died, my aunt told me many years later, he phoned her the night that night and said, what have I done, Iris? What kind of place have I brought my family to? And I, th I think he started to see the, the, the because, yeah, I, I don't think we would have stayed for on for much longer if he hadn't died. Mm hmm. I wonder if your mother would have followed him out, no, though. No. Right? Yeah. No. That's the sense I get. Uh, do you, if she had not found, if your mother hadn't found Klaus Isabantu, do you think she would have been able to parent you in nurturing and consistent ways? Yes, I do. She was a good mother. Um, I think we had our issues. I think every mother and daughter probably has their issues. But, you know, if, if I recall that she would sometimes stay up at night sewing a dress for like a, a, a play that I had to appear in on every birthday mm -hmm. when we were young you know she would make these very elaborate cakes the one year I got a castle the next year I got Humpty mm -hmm. Dumpty you know she she <laughs> she um she may not have been the most I don't know demonstratively expressive of her love but she 
absolutely cared for us um, and and she made sure that we were well looked after yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's uh, you know as an outsider and a reader and um, you know someone who's about your age you know I just want to say I hear you and I, I know that that has to be an ongoing source of grief yeah it kind of is <laughs> Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I think the reason, I think the main reason I didn't have children is because I was so scared of turning into her. Oh, I can understand that. You know, um, I totally understand that. And also just the, the person that comes through in your memoir doesn't seem like anyone, you that is, doesn't seem like anyone who could do anything <laughs> like your mom did to you. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you have such a big heart. Um, and you're you're curious and you mm. are doing hard work to figure out how these things happen yes. is you know before we get to the memoir the last few moments of the interview is there anything further you hope that readers can understand or take away in your memoir about um personal responsibility and power oh wow yeah you see i believe that with knowledge comes responsibility And that is why I've not been able to just carry on with my life. Um, Knowing that there are still children being raised there under those same principles, you know, they believe that you have to break the spirit of a child by the age of three. Um, And maybe they don't use the methods they used when I was a child, but it's still an incredibly toxic environment for any child to grow up in. And, Mm -hmm. um, But I've also had to, especially in the last two years, um, understand that not everybody speaks up and and to and to honor um, the survivors whose stories might have made a big difference, but who didn't want to speak Mm. and to not get frustrated with them because our journeys are our own. And I think that if you are one of the people who is willing to speak up, please do. Because not everybody is. And if you are one of them, use your voice, use your power and speak up. Mm, thank you for that. Do you want to share some of those memoirs that you yes. you brought today that you'd like to recommend? <laughs> so in the early 1990s, now I didn't even look back to see when it was written, but one of the first books I ever wrote that gave me so much hope was Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt. I mean, mm-hmm. a classic, of course, but I just thought if he could survive all that, like, you know, um, I can too. And I think that is, mm-hmm. I think that is what memoirs by survivors do for other people who have been through hardships. And it doesn't have to be the same hardship. It, it gives us hope, you know, and I think yes. that's why it's such an important thing to do if you can write your story is to do that because you don't know who you're going to touch. Then, of course, there's The Choice by Dr. Dr. Edith Eager, which is just one of the most magnificent books ever. Um, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. And then The Witness Will Read by Rebecca Musser and Lost Boy by Brent Jeffs and Maya Salavitz. Uh, the, ooh, it's such a long name, the FLDS Church. They, apart from the polygamy, mm-hmm. they have so much in common with Kwasi Sabantu. Then 
Kielbergen's Holy Unraveled. I learned a lot about how to deal with shame from her book. Unfollow, Megan Phelps Roper, an absolutely brilliant, brilliant novel. And then there's Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. That is just unbelievably beautiful. And it's only the first of eight, I believe. And so I've made it my mission for this year to read all eight. Then I've got four South African ones that I want to just quickly mention to you. Always Another Country, A Memoir of Exile and Home by Sisonke Msimang. That is, everybody should read this. And it will also give you such an insight into South Africa as well. Then there is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful book called Boy on the Run by Welka Mantla Leshiva. And um, it's about growing up poor and queer and loved in um, South Africa. It's stunning. And then there are two memoirs by Sarah Jane Makwala King. The first is Killing Caroline, What Happens When the Baby They Buried Comes Back. And then the follow-up on that is Mad Bad Love and How the Things We Love Can Nearly Kill Us. It's two brilliant um, memoirs that deal with themes of adoption, um, belonging, loss, addiction, and love. And they are both just extremely powerful books. So, yeah. Thank I you. could go I'm on. I mean, really I'm such eager. a reader. Oh, I'm so <laughs> eager to read these. Um, and I'll put them in the show notes so that people Fabulous. can easily find them and the authors. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I know you've given such great uh, insight and advice throughout this conversation. Is there any other, I mean, if we ended it without any further advice, I'm sure everyone would have so much to take away. But are there any parting words for memoirists that you'd like to offer? I would like to speak to people who want to write but don't know if they can and don't know if they have it in them and they, they, they think they might want to. What really helped me was telling my story in voice notes and then listening back to the voice note and then typing um, and somehow. And I also did it with a really difficult passages that I just couldn't mm. seem to write. I would lie in the bath because the bath is like my happy place with mm -hmm. and and I would just record voice notes and then the next day I would work with those voice notes um, to create the chapter and I don't know if that's a tip that would work for anyone else but I find that when something is extremely hard to write down it's sometimes easier to say and once you have the words out there then it's easier to put them on on the screen. Yes, I do like that suggestion. And I've also used voice notes. Uh, I've used them for reminding myself of things that I want to include. And mm. also, um, it's really good to help capture the way you speak and keep the voice of your memoir kind of in your voice, depending on the voice that you're using. Right? Yes. It's like a nice way to crack open something that you don't know how to approach. So yes. I love that idea. Yeah. So Erica, where can people find you? So in South Africa, I would always recommend um, going to an independent bookstore. But unfortunately, I'm in South Africa and most of your listeners, I think, are not in South Africa. <laughs> so it would be it would be Amazon. It's also on Kindle and on Audible. Okay. Thank you so much for being my guest and for sharing this time with me. Thank it you, really Anish. was so, so lovely to be able to talk with you. And thank you for creating such a safe space for me. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.